0: I love that song don't you love that song you know what I love about that song is that so much of modern worship is so shallow because it focuses on humans and while we certainly matter to God the object of worship is the Lord and the whole point of that song is is that you did it you defended me all I did was worship all I did was praise true freedom true victory in the Christian life is not finding it within you it's reaching the end of yourself and finding it within the Lord and he goes before us. And one of the ways in which he prepares us to trust him is by not being silent. God has spoken. He has spoken through his word. And it is that word I'd like you to open this morning to, with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you have a device with an app on your phone, that, that suffices. But If you have a printed copy, which makes your pastor really happy, I greatly appreciate you bringing your Bibles to church and finding 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'd like you to find the 12th verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. And I'm so honored today to preach to you from verse 12 down through verse 17. Before I do, I want to remind you where we are. We are in a sermon series simply entitled, Do You Not no, those are not my words. They are the words of the Apostle Paul. He said them seven times in chapter 5 and chapter 6. This is his way of using the power of words to grammatically make a point. He says it over and over again. It is a rhetorical question. He is struggling. He's hurting. To be honest with you, if if we want to stay with the spirit of the text, he's frustrated at what has happened in Corinth. Now, he loves the people of Corinth, the believers there. He had skin in the game. He ministered there. He wept with them. He rejoiced with them. He broke bread with them. He preached and taught them the gospel. And then he left, and upon his leaving sin crept into the lives of the believers. Now, we have no reason to believe that it was every believer, but some serious sin, some scandalous sin, some sexual sin had crept into the lives of at least some of the believers. And the thing that was the tragedy for Paul is that the rest of the church had been rather indifferent of it. They had grown tolerant to it. And when Paul gets this report, one of the motives of writing the letter of 1 Corinthians is that he's calling them out. He's taking them to task. He's doing what someone who loves you will always do if there's compromise in your life. They won't disown you. They won't condemn you. But they will also not ignore it, and they will challenge you because they want God's best for you. You And so when we get into chapter 5 and chapter 6, after the first four chapters, which primarily deal with spiritual arrogance, uh, we see Paul turn his attention to some of the scandals rocking the Corinthian church. And so he says in verse 6 of chapter 5, in verse 2, 3, 9, 15, 16, and 19 of chapter 6, do you not know? You could translate it, or at least you could capture the essence of it by saying the words, you know better. You know better than this. And I felt led in my spirit to to just pause at this point and to remind you this week and next week, we will complete this series. And when I think of you over the last few weeks in walking through this, my heart, really gravitated toward thank you. Thank you for being willing to receive hard words from God. Thank you for being a receptive church that wants to hear all of God's word. I knew that this series would stir some stuff up, and and every week, not once, every week on multiple occasions, whether it be through a social media message, a, a post, an email, a note, It has been amazing to me how encouraging you have been by sharing with me what God is doing in your life through his word. And some of you went so far as to share with me a previous journey you went on with a previous struggle in your life that no longer has victory, but God delivered you from something, God forgave you of something, something of a scandalous nature, something of a sensual or sexual nature, and you walk in that victory today, and you have shared that with me. You'll never know what that does to the heart of a pastor who knows that no matter what text I come to, no matter what topic God ordains for us to deal with, I have a church family that has a forward lean about their listening. You want to hear the Word of God. And so I'm grateful for that. And as we complete this series, we really do it in two parts. Today is really a look at the spiritual and emotional background of sexual sin. And then next week is going to be very practical. If the Bible says flee from sexual sin, how do you flee? What does that look like in our lives? So if you know somebody in your life who may be struggling with a sinful relationship, who may be struggling to forgive themselves of their past, who may be struggling with some form of sexual sin, I would strongly encourage you to guide them toward this word and next week's words. Of course, they're all available online, podcast, in every social media platform. We're there and we would love to share that with them. And one of the things I've told you over and over is that this is not a series, this is not a series about the sexual sin of the world. This is a series about sexual temptation and sin in the life of believers and in the life of our church, a church just like the church in Corinth in that we are not immune from the same temptations and the same troubles. In fact, just when you think there's nothing new under the sun, you ought to read the history of Corinth and how immoral it was. We know our world is lost, and we know that that means our world is lost sexually. Some of you know you lived through the sexual revolution of the 60s. And then, of course, that led to the homosexual revolution, And now we have the transgender revolution. And so what we find is that when there is no moral compass, when there is no high view of God, each society becomes her own moral authority. We know this. In fact, I thought it was illustrated rather powerfully recently when the news broke about the new battle of those who would push a new sexual ethic into the lives of our children. There is a new catchphrase going around, especially among those who would try to influence society through the education of our children. We all know that it has long been the standing practice for education to provide some form of curriculum related to sex education. But now there is a new term called comprehensive sex education, and this is code for trying to push an incredibly immoral ethic into the lives of our children. In fact, this is an ad promoting it. It's medically accurate. It's shame-free. That ought to be a red flag. It's age-appropriate. It's culturally competent. Which culture? See, See, when there is no God, you have to trust in your culture. It's culturally competent, and it is honest. And what we find is that especially since the overturning of Roe, there is an agenda to say we better go after re-educating the next generation on a sexual ethic. Now, for years and years and years, sex education meant you taught children, I don't know, the biology of procreation, how children are made how through the union of a man and a woman in the precious womb of a mother who is a woman, a child is conceived. And there's certainly nothing wrong with teaching children at age-appropriate levels the things that can and cannot happen when you open your life up to sexual activity. But there is a difference between talking about facts and pushing a narrative where you almost separate the emotional and spiritual Spiritual aspects of intimacy. And for many years, there have been many gifted men and women in education who both taught sex education, but also taught one of the greatest and wisest decisions that a young person could make would be to take very seriously the step of even becoming sexually active. And of course, the church would say that abstinence should be the choice prior to marriage. But now abstinence is in the crosshairs of an agenda that is so progressive it has lost its moral compass. Here's an article from the ACOU recently. This is what the ACOU has to say. Abstinence-only curriculum. These programs instill fear and shame to discourage teenagers from engaging in sexual activity. When was that a bad idea? They generally provide little information that can help sexually active teenagers protect themselves from pregnancy and disease. How about because there's not much? Of course I understand contraception. Of course I understand the theory of safe sex. I I understand, that. I'm not not an intellectual guy, but I try to read as much as I can. But here's the point. When you engage in sexual activity, Before you're mature enough to make lasting committed relationships, you open yourself up to all kinds of dangers and fears emotionally, spiritually, and physically, and that can never be negated. The article goes on to say, these curricula are laden with scientific and medical inaccuracies, sexist and racist stereotypes. Remember, if you don't like something, just call somebody sexist or racist and religious prescriptions for proper behavior and values. Let me tell you something, not a person in this room is free from sexual sin, but I was raised on religious prescriptions for proper behavior and values, and I praise God for it. When we look at the world and we see the brokenness of the world, the temptation is to say, that is so bad, it makes my little bitty sexual sin or my exploits or my years of walking in rebellion look rather good. I'm okay. Let's just pick up a rock and throw, the world, uh, throw it at the world and send it to hell and call ourselves to be self-righteous. Well, that's exactly why Paul wrote this letter. Pa- Paul's not talking about Corinth. We, we know the world's lost sexually, which is all the more reason why Christ followers need to make sure that the gospel demands a different ethic in their life. To be people of the gospel means that the gospel informs every area of our life. It does not mean we are ignorant. It does not mean we ignore biology. It doesn't mean that we ignore science, that we ignore what the facts are but it means that we allow every area of our life to come under the lordship of Christ, and that also includes the area of our life reserved for our most intimate of human activity in relationship. By God's grace, there are thousands of humans in my life. By God's grace, there are hundreds of deep, loving, rich relationships in my life. And I hope yours is the same. And I wouldn't trade anything for the amazing people who have influenced and encouraged me. And all of those relationships are defined by levels of intimacy, There may be an acquaintance. There may be a friend from my past. There may be a brother or sister in the Lord who I'm especially close with. But each of those have a varying degree of contact and emotional investment and spiritual connection as they should in their lane. And so when it comes to the most intimate contact that humans share, the most important, powerful, romantic feelings that we are designed to feel— it should not surprise us that the God who gave us that powerful thing of intimacy and romantic love and sexual satisfaction and the gift of procreation, it should not surprise us that he has a lot to say about that and he speaks in it for our good and not in any way to curse or to condemn us. And so when we then begin to think about the discussion of Of sexual sin in our lives of course the issue of purity comes up I don't mean purity in the form of celibacy but purity in the form of sexual purity no matter what place in life you may find yourself Whether you not be in a covenant marriage where God's call on your life is a life of abstinence and celibacy, or you're inside of a covenant marriage where God's call on your life is to enjoy the gift of marriage and intimacy, there is still the call of purity. Every year, every year, I find myself with a different group of men walking through a great book called The Disciplines of a Godly Man. Right now, I'm doing it in a spiritual formation class within our school of ministry with young men training for the ministry. And in the book, Spiritual Discipline, Disciplines of a Godly Man, R. Kent Hughes does a great job on purity. And in purity, in the discussion of purity, he lays out the downward spiral, and he bases it off of King David's life. It's a great study where, of how it works. How do we find ourselves pulled into sexual sin? Because sexual sin is far uh, more powerful than any other type of sin. He says, first, there's a desensitization That's a hard word to say. I practice it backstage. (laughs) A desensitization. We become desensitized to all of the sexuality around us. In your purse, in your pocket, or you may have it open with an app on your phone of the Bible, is a device that I believe is one of the enemy's most powerful tools to desensitize us to the sexualized culture we live in. You just become desensitive to it. Then you relax around it. You look at things you would never have looked at 10 years ago. You view things that you would never view but sitting beside your grandmother. You share videos or jokes that cross the line between something funny to something that is inappropriate, immoral. Then there becomes a fixation on it. Men especially struggle with this in the area of pornography, but it's not just men. There can be a fixation on an emotional fulfillment of a relationship that you're not in that can enchant the eyes of a woman. And then once the fixation sets in, comes the step I'd like to preach about this morning, the rationalization of why it's not that bad. How did we get there? Because once you rationalize it, you go right into the degeneration. And by the way, all this happened in... David's life as he accumulated wealth and didn't go off to war and became fixated on Bathsheba and then he rationalized it. And then, of course, we know not only did he commit adultery, but once she became pregnant due to his sin, he had her husband moved to the front of the line and killed in battle. It doesn't get any worse. Than this, And if you want to know how broken he was over it, go to read Psalm 51, and you'll see his brokenness and repentance of this terrible sin. And while God did forgive him, and we rejoice in that, uh, the consequences, the, 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 the disease of immorality that that sin invited into his family would haunt him the rest of his life. And it is at that stage of rationalization that I think we come to Paul here. Paul does something interesting beginning in verse 12. We have dealt with sexual sin all the way from verse from chapter 5, but then he really transitions to dealing with some of the wrong reasoning of the Corinthians. How did they get to that point where they were allowing or participating in things that were clearly against God's word? And, and my, my my fear is also my request. My fear is that you don't listen to this passage and go, "Boy, you know, DJ, I appreciate you preaching on that, I don't see how people get to that point. Because if you do that, if you make it somebody else's problem, you're getting to that point. No matter where you are in your walk with the Lord, no matter what level of righteousness or purity you may be living, you and I are to be diligent and to be watchful, and the moment we think we're beyond failing, the moment we think that we have declared victory over any struggle that could come into our life, is the moment the enemy gets a foothold. And so while this may apply to people in your life that you know, my prayer and my request as your shepherd, let it apply to your life. What we find is him beginning in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Notice that's in quotation marks. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up by his power. Do you not know, here comes our phrase again, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that... He who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Don't be intimidated if when you listen to me read that, you're like, okay, we got food, we got stomach, we got laws, we got a prostitute, we we got the Lord, we got the resurrection. I mean, I don't know that you could pack more Christianity in these verses than Paul did. I can have, that because I spent most of Monday taking it apart in the original language trying to make sense of it so I didn't get up here and make a fool of myself when we come to this passage what we realize is is that Paul was taking aim at some of their wrong reasoning and it looks as though there were at least three wrong reasons that they had grown indifferent or tolerant to sexual sin, whether it be in their life or in the lives of someone else. And we pick up on a word in verse 12. Look at verse 12 again. He quotes a phrase that may have been popular in Corinth. It may also have been used even by the Apostle Paul. I'll explain in a minute. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful for me. But then notice how he says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. That word dominated really speaks to power. In other words, Paul is saying, there's some powerful things that I can do with my life, but I will never allow the things I can do to have power over me. In the moment of giving in to sexual sin, in the moment of being tolerant of someone else's sexual sin, even though we may count ourselves their brother or their sister, and God may be calling us to challenge or encourage them to repent, What we are doing is we are being dominated by that which God has asked us to dominate. We are allowing that which is powerful to overpower us rather than walking in the victory of Christ and exerting power in purity in those situations. And there are at least three examples in this passage. So how did sexual sexual sin occur in Corinth? Number one, it occurred when freedom dominated over their faithfulness. Now, now freedom in Christ is great. It's wonderful to sing about. When you read the Old Testament, you begin aching for a savior because the law is overwhelming. Not one of us could keep God's perfect law. In fact, in the history of humanity, According to the testimony of God's Word, there is only one human being that's ever been born and never broken a single law of God. And of course, we know that is the Lord Jesus. And so the reason for the law in the Old Testament is not only to show us the holiness of God, but also to place the bar so high to get us to a point not of self-dependence or self-righteousness, But get us to a point of brokenness where we say, I need a Savior to do for me what I could not do. I've often shared this with you, and I I love doing it because it's so encouraging. God is the lawmaker. I am the lawbreaker. Jesus is the lawkeeper. So the lawmaker sent the lawkeeper to save a lawbreaker. That's what the law teaches us. Now, when we begin to examine that and then we see the finished work of Christ, we gain freedom. All of a sudden, we can eat foods that were not allowed to be eaten in the Old Testament. We're not married to ceremonies or rituals. You're not here today because of some Sabbath law in the Old Testament. In fact, I got news for you. The Sabbath was yesterday, according to the Jewish calendar. It's the seventh day of the week. We're here on the first day of the week, free from Sabbath obligation, but keeping the spirit of the Sabbath in choosing one day of week to worship. But we follow in the heritage of the first Christians who began worshiping on the first day of the week Because that was the day of the week they found the tomb empty. You preached the resurrection when you came in on Sunday this morning. You said, I'm coming to this church to worship a Lord who rose on a Sunday many years ago. And so this great freedom set Paul free. That's why he says to the most legalistic church he ever dealt with, those brothers and sisters in Galatia, they must have been Baptists. It's okay to laugh, even if it's so difficult, So It's okay, relax. It's Labor Day weekend, relax a little bit. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Paul stood toe-to-toe with legalists and said, you cannot reduce Christianity to a list of rules that you should keep. We are free in Christ. The greatest theological work he ever wrote was Romans. What did he say in Romans? But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way. What's the new way? Of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. No Old Testament believer had the Holy Spirit living in them. The Spirit of God could move on them. But the Spirit of God could not live in any sinner until the sin of the sinner is taken away. And the sin of the sinner could not be fully taken away until the sinless sin saver went to the cross. And once he was crucified and resurrected and the price was paid upon the application of that forgiveness to a believer's life then the Holy Spirit can come to live in. I love the Holy Spirit. We should rejoice in the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. And Paul says why would you ever reduce your faith back down to a lot of rules and rituals when we live by the Spirit? But you know where I'm going. What's the threat? Well the threat is if you preach freedom but you allow sin to creep in your life, you can say Your freedom in Christ is allowing you to go in ways that dishonor the Lord in order to escape the judgment of others. You just redefine who God is. This is what those who would identify as Christians yet bought into the sexual revolution, the homosexual revolution, the transgender movement. Years and years and years ago, if you accepted a lifestyle outside of basic biblical Christianity, you left the church. You rejected Christ. Now, many in that crowd just redefine who Jesus is and tell you and I that you're unloving because their Jesus would accept all people. My Jesus loves all people, he only accepts saved people. Saved people only get saved when they call sin sin and repent from it. We're not self righteous. Hypocritical, bigots, homophobic, intolerant. We simply say, we too needed salvation. And because Christ is the Lord, his word is the authority. Not what you feel or what I feel. And certainly not whatever the modern rationalization is. We heard this over the last three years, right? Have you ever seen more definitions of what trust the science means? I'm just going to trust the Savior. He has not changed. And so what happens is, is that Paul encounters a church that is scared to death of dealing with the sexual ethic because they're afraid that they'll be seen as not celebrating the freedom of Christ. And look what Paul says in verse 12. He says these words. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. You know, there's some stuff I can go do, but that doesn't mean it's helpful. He goes on to say, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. You cannot use the law of the land as your moral compass. It would be legal for me today to leave here, drive over to GSP, overpay for a flight that's probably going to get canceled. Fly to Denver, buy some weed and smoke it. Totally legal. Totally legal. And if I posted a picture of that, the elders would meet within a few hours, and I wouldn't be your pastor anymore. And they would be right. Just because it's legal. In many places, even today, it's perfectly legal to abort a baby. To end the life of a child does not mean it's right. The legal definition of marriage has been changed, yet marriage has not changed in the view of God. Paul is saying, stop throwing this freedom card around and remember something. Inside of the new way, which he says in Romans, the Spirit of God will never lead a child of God to disobey the Word of God. And the Word of God in the New Testament continues to uphold the same sexual ethic. There are parts of the law that are still given freedom in our life, yet they are to us obligatory. For example, there were parts of the law that were fulfilled, and we can eat anything we can eat. Every time I eat pig, I praise God for that vision. (laughs) Thankful for it. It's clearly in Scripture. But the same New Testament that says we are no longer under the ceremonial food laws also says honor the marriage bed. Jesus said, from the beginning, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become One, you will hear people say, Jesus never spoke about this. Jesus never spoke about that. Jesus never addressed that. First of all, we don't have every word Jesus ever said. The Bible tells us that. We have every word God wanted us to have. But second of all, Jesus doesn't have to speak about every deviation when he clearly affirms this is what marriage is and nothing else is. This is God's ordained purpose for our lives." Remember, grace is free, but boundaries are blessings. Boundaries are blessings. You need boundaries in your life. If I were to ask you who the greatest basketball players in the world, some of you say Michael Jordan, others of you say LeBron James, Kobe might get in there. There There's some others that you can mention, but do you know why these men are the greatest basketball players in the world? Because there's a boundary around the court. When you watch them play, they play with such freedom. But we would never even know how good they are if we didn't put the game inside of rules. The boundaries of the court, the shot clock, the number of fouls, most of which never get called, and they're against them. That determines the game. And once the game is defined by the boundaries, then they can be free to enjoy their God-gifted ability. Think about all the problems in America today. You list them. And I'm not talking about problems related to one sociodemographic people. You can go to an Indian reservation out west, wrought with alcoholism. Our teams work with one in Montana. You can go to the northwest, extremely liberal and Progressive society, the roots of Antifa. You can go to places like Chicago, urban, poor, gang violence. Doesn't matter the skin color. You list all the social problems. List them all. Drug abuse, alcoholism, domestic violence, gang violence, abortion, sexual exploitation, trafficking. List them all this is interesting because it dawned on me in my study this week. I'm not suggesting that a behavior change changes people's lives spiritually. Don't hear that. But if you could pick one thing that would address every social problem our country is rotting from, I would tell you that if every young man and every young woman made a commitment to find one person with shared values, marry that person, enjoy the gift of sex with that person, and raise the children from that union, almost all of those social problems would be obliterated. Statistically, even outside of the discussion of faith, if you marry and stay committed to your marriage and raise the children from that union, you are almost without question delivered from so many of the plights our society struggles with. And you say, well, if it's so simple, why don't people see that? Because that's God's plan. That's God's plan. First thing he did, made a man. Second thing he did, realized the man was incomplete and made a better man. I call her a woman. Third thing he did, made a family. Before any nation, any civilization, any social program, any theory, any philosophy of people comes, he made a man, he made a woman, he made marriage, and he made a family. And we know that we flourish in that. And those boundaries are blessings. Now, now, very quickly, secondly, Paul also shows us that in addition to their freedom dominating their faithfulness, pleasure dominated their purpose. So we get this discussion in verse 13 that's a little odd. Food is meant for the stomach. Now, if I were to just pause there, somebody say, amen, brother. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Praise God for that. Some of you just thought of your lunch right now. Food is meant for the stomach. That's true. That's not profound. It's an obvious thing. And guess what that means? And the stomach for food. And some of you are like, I know. Everything I eat is right here. Food is meant for the stomach. Stomach is for food. What do we have here? We have a biological function. Your GI tract. Your digestive system is meant to take in food. If you eat things that are not food, you'll get sick and you could die. If you don't eat food, you'll die. So your digestive system, which in the ancient world, your stomach is meant for food. And guess what that means? Food is meant for your stomach, which is why most of us have a problem. Any food we see, we want to deliver it and deposit it into our stomach. That's what it's for. We prepare a meal to cook it. We don't worship food. We shouldn't. We don't prepare food to not eat it. We prepare uh, food to cook it. You want to frustrate Mama? Have her cook. Have it on the table, and then nobody come in and out. Well, I got this. I got. I made all this food. You gonna eat it today or you're gonna eat it tomorrow? We have that discussion a lot. We will wrap it up, but you're going to eat it. I got half of my crowd will fight with the other half. Well, I'll eat it if he ain't gonna eat it. (laughs) It's real simple. Now, what what could we do? we could see that same reasoning with sex. See, one of the wrong reasonings is we just reduce sex to a biological need. The, the problem with that is, is that theology has to override biology. This is why the Bible says this in verse 13, food is meant for the stomach, is stomach for the food, and God will destroy one and the other. This body's going to go away. A glorified body will be risen from it, but what I'm doing now, the pursuit of food is going to end. There will come a day where I will no longer have to worry about my health and my nutrition. In the new heaven and the new earth, without the curse of sin, food will be enjoyed, but it will not become the sweat of our brow. It will not become what we break our backs for. Remember the curse in Genesis 3? He told Adam, from now on, raising food is going to be hard. There's a food crisis today if you read certain uh, people in journalism about the different areas of famine that could come next. Mankind is struggling to feed herself, to feed itself. Paul says, all that's going to go away. But let me tell you what's not going to go away. You as a whole, theologically speaking, your body." Your body before the Lord will not go away. It will be resurrected one day. It will be glorified. But you will carry this body into eternity. So he says you cannot reduce what you do with your body sexually to the same level as what you do with your food digestively. Because all that's going to pass away. That's a part of the old order. But your body and the members of your body will definitely be in the new heaven and the new earth. This is why, of course, we don't believe in the assault on gender because we believe God makes two choices when he makes you. He makes you. That's a choice. And then he chooses to make you male or female. Genesis one, in the beginning, God made man and he made them male and female. And so we recognize this, but if you remove theology from the discussion, what then is the natural rationalization? It's real simple. If we are reduced to highly evolved animals, no wonder there's no sexual ethic anybody can define. We don't define it in our animals. Animals have no sexual ethic. They are driven by what? A simple innate desire to procreate. This is what they do. And so when you remove the fact that we are made in the image of God from people's worldview, you can only imagine how it introduces into their life a complete and total blank slate where morality is in limbo. There's no way to define it. And Paul deals with this in Corinth. Apparently, some of the Christians are saying, hey, look, what I do in my spiritual life and how I connect with Jesus, that's between me and him. But this old fleshly body, you know, it really doesn't matter what you do with your body as long as you're connected with Jesus spiritually. You don't think that doesn't get played? How about this? Oh, I love Jesus and I'm saved. And I know I'm living with my girlfriend, but I love Jesus and I'm saved. Oh, I I love Jesus, and I'm saved. Uh, But the truth is, I've never cheated on my wife, so a little porn in my life is really not that big a deal. Oh, I love Jesus, and I'm saved, but I got this 18-year-old boy, and he's good-looking, so I'm going to tell him, hey, son, I know you're going to have a good time. Just be careful. That's a stench in the nostrils of a holy God. Doesn't mean an 18-year-old boy ain't going to deal with sexual sin. I promise you he's going to deal with temptation doesn't mean that pornography is not a real pull and a temptation and almost all the men in every church that I've ever preached at will tell you at some point in their life they have struggled with seeing and being pulled into pornography it doesn't mean that God doesn't love the person who's currently living with and sexually active with a person they are not married to he does love you but that doesn't make it right and 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 what Paul is saying is don't reduce yourself to an animal you've been made in the image of a living God And therefore, the future of your body should determine how you handle it now. And what is the future? Well, look what the Bible says. He says, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. But here's why. Look at it. But for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And then he goes to Jesus. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up by his power our body. He's insinuating... Our body will be raised like Jesus. This is why Paul says to the Philippian believers this word. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So my body's on the way to heaven. So the ethic on my body today is like the one that will be in a new heaven and a new earth. This body is riddled with the curse of sin, and therefore I feel the temptation and the pull, whether it be lust, anger, gluttony, pride, whatever, you make a list. I feel that pull, and even though I feel that pull, and when I stumble, I claim the grace of God, I'm never allowed to say, well, that's just this old body. I guess it's really not that big a deal. I've dotted the I's and crossed the T's of my theology, and I know the blood covers, so I'm going to dabble over here and praise Jesus on Sunday, and the American church is filled with that. Which leads to the last one. Sexuality dominated over their spirituality. Paul does something here that's it's, it's, it's powerful, and it's meant to be shocking. The half-brother of Jesus, James, he shocked his crowd with this statement in James 4. He says these words in James 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's a shocking statement. Paul's got that same thing going on to the Corinth. Prostitution to them was as normal as inappropriate pics of scandally clad women on Instagram to us. It was everywhere. In fact, prostitution was a part of pagan worship at the Temple of Aphrodite, which sat on the hillside just outside of Corinth. So it would have been very common for the men and sometimes the women to engage in prostitution for worship, and those are some of the same people that had gotten saved and become Christians. And some of them obviously had fallen back into that temptation, and I can only imagine how tempting it was when everyone around you accepted it. We do not live in a society where prostitution is legal. I've been to countries where prostitution is legal. legal. There are pockets of places in the United States where prostitution is legal. There are people, certainly of a progressive agenda, that would like to legalize prostitution and talk about the rights of sex workers. They do have a right not to be a sex worker. And And so when we think about the exploitation of children, when we think about trafficking, don't you ever give an inch to that crowd. Don't give an inch one bit. Making something legal does not make it safe if it is against the word of God. And so when we begin to think about this issue, Paul makes a powerful spiritual and to be honest with you, a rather uncomfortable argument. I'm not going to explain it in detail, but I'll let the adults in the room make the connection. He says in verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, Paul says. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. And all of a sudden, what Paul does is he reminds us that something spiritual takes place in the union of a man and a woman. This is why we'll talk about this more next week. There is no such thing, this is a lie, there is no such thing as casual sex. There are casual handshakes. There's casual business transactions. There's all kinds of casual relationships that can be casual. But when you become intimate with someone, casual becomes a casualty. You cannot have a casual intimate relationship. You either reduce it to a transaction that robs the soul of the spirit of what it is Or you bind yourself to a person with no commitment and no parameters, and the spiritual scars are deep. I shared you with this a few weeks ago. I remind you again, I never have someone come to our counseling ministry that says, in 1984, when I was on spring break, on a dare, I stole a car, and I can't forgive myself. Nobody ever says that. But so many men and women carry around for years the scars and the baggage of promiscuity. It's just different than still in a car. Now, I don't promote either, but it's just different because it is something in us and through us that God has given us. And that's when he says, The two will become one, verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. I think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body. Don't worry, ladies but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So I'll just use myself as an example so as not to make you feel awkward. There are two people that have authority over my body, my Lord and my wife. Therefore, those are the only two people that have intimate knowledge of my body, and the same is true for my wife. And that's true for all of us. And so Paul makes a simple argument If it is the most intimate, powerful, spiritual, emotional thing that we do, the romantic sexual relationship between a man and a woman, then it should obviously be reserved for the most intimate, powerful commitment we make, which is the covenant relationship of marriage between a man and a woman. And so, if you elevate sexuality over biblical spirituality, you actually gut the gospel of marriage. And that's what we've done. Think about the crowd that says, if you don't accept my identity, whatever it is, then you hate me. For years, the church said, we don't agree with this, we don't agree with that, we don't agree with this, but we love you. You've heard the phrase, hate the sin, love the sinner. But now that is seen as bigotry because they say, if you don't accept my, what you determine to be sin, my lifestyle, You cannot accept me. Why is that? It is because when people get lost in their sexual sin, their sexuality becomes their identity. Think about what is celebrated, it becomes the overriding thing. In virtually every room I walk into, I don't walk in with my heterosexuality as a label. It is a part of my identity, but it's just a part. In fact, it's only a part to be known and enjoyed by the woman I've committed to. So every other relationship is free from any tension, free from nuance, free from endo-endo. In fact, I can freely relate to men and women because I'm free to enjoy the fullness of my sexuality in the one relationship God gave it to. And when you don't have that, then every relationship has to be defined by your level of acceptance of my sexuality, which is exactly what we see playing out in our world. And this is why Paul is trying to say, wait a minute. Don't elevate your sexuality over your spirituality. Be who you are in Christ. Then you'll be what you need to be in this world, emotionally, physically, financially, and sexually. If you were in Cedar Rapids, Iowa this morning and you went to the Good News Baptist Church, you might hear Pastor Joshua Broom preach. He's a pastor there. This is him and his beautiful family. His wife's name, Hope. What you might not know about him, unless you Google it, you ought to, is that this guy from the Carolinas moved to Los Angeles to pursue a modeling career. He's a good-looking guy. I know I had some offers at one point, and, uh, <laughs> and the face-to-face interview didn't go well. I <laughs> face for radio. Through a series of terrible decisions and spiritual lostness, he ended up being one of the top male actors in the adult film industry. He said he was so empty that he wanted to kill himself after every scene. Nobody knew him by his name. He went by some stage name he had. And at the end of his rope, he deposited a paycheck one day at his bank. And because his paycheck had to have his legal name, the teller said, Joshua. No one called his name Joshua. No one even knew who he was. He had tried to hide his identity so his family wouldn't find out. Once they found out, he was isolated, disconnected from everybody. Joshua, is there anything else I can help you with? This is what bank tellers do. They say, is there anything else I can help you with? He said, when I heard a person speak my name that my mother gave me, it crushed me. I walked across the street to my apartment. I called my agent. I said, I'm done. I moved back to my home in North Carolina. He said, I didn't know what to do, so I got a job in the gym training people to work out. I had to lie about who I'd been, who I was. After a few years of doing that, he met Hope. She came in to work out. They started a conversation. He knew he knew how hard his past life would be. So he decided early on to say, I need to tell you who I am. And he told her the whole story. She was completely shocked. But Hope was a Christian. And she looked at him that day and she said, Josh, God determines who you are. That's what she said. She said, God determines who you are. She said, Have you ever heard the gospel? where are you spiritually? He said, I had no way to answer that. So she went to church with him. He went on an Easter Sunday. It's where a lot of French people show up. Preacher preached, he got saved. A year later, they married. He got active in his church, felt called to ministry. Now he's a preacher of the gospel because God determined who Josh was. God defines who you are, not the world. And if Josh can stand and preach God's word after doing what he did with his life, there's nobody in here too far from God. There's nobody in here too gone, too dirty, too scarred. That's not the point. In fact, that's the lie. That's what the enemy wants. The enemy wants you to disqualify yourself from repentance. But there's a better way. I'm going to close in prayer today. Next week, we're going to get real practical. I want to leave you with that phrase. God defines who you are. Church family, if he defines who you are, then God defines how we live. And when we fail, we call it what it is. We turn from it. And we claim that grace. And we walk in the newness of life he's called us to. Because he defined who we are. Let's pray. Father, I love you. Thank you for this word. Lord, you're edifying people in this room. My spirit says that you are working. I'm going to say amen and we're going to leave. And I hope and pray that these precious folks enjoy a wonderful Sunday afternoon. And for many of them, a Monday off work with their family. God, underneath the laughter and the joy and the barbecue and the friends, would you begin a work in people's lives to help us have a passion for purity? There's a better way. Bless the unions. Reignite some fire in some marriages. Remind people who are in a season of singleness that they are not defined by their marital status. For those with scars of regret, sorrow, remind them that there's one thing greater than the depth of our sin, it is the grace of God in the blood of Christ. And for those clearly, clearly living against your word, remind them that you don't deliver words like this to condemn them or to alienate them. There is a way to turn and repent. It requires courage, and faith, but it can be done. I pray for that. Lord, you add your blessings to the preaching of your word. You dismiss us in the hope of Jesus, and you allow us to walk in the newness of life because you determine and you define who we are. And God's people said, amen. I love you. You are dismissed.